Hey, I'm Jared. I'm the student ministry pastor here at Olive Branch. If we have not met, uh, please come introduce yourself to me. I'd love to meet you and probably forget your name right away. Sorry, I just don't remember names well. It's just how I am. But just introduce yourself to me like every week and maybe eventually it will stick. Um, so I'm excited to, to be uh, down here today as opposed to up at the youth property mainly just because like up there, I don't get to see a lot of second service people and definitely not a lot of third service people. So it's good to be uh, down here this morning. Um, but I'm, I'm stoked to get into this message because it's, it's basically the Easter message and it's not Easter, but at least I can finally like say like, oh yeah, I've, I've preached on the Easter message, which like as a, as a pastor, like that's like when you know you've made it, like I get to preach on the resurrection. And so that's what we'll, we'll be in today. But I've titled my sermon, uh, Too Good to Be True. Um, because I believe that it is too good to be true. Um, and, and for us as people, things that are too good to be true are often just hard to believe. Like, I think most people in this room, like, how many of you, I asked the first service and not many, I didn't see a whole lot of hands, but how many people would you say, like, you've, you've had a hard time believing something at one point or another? Okay, a few more hands. Wow, there's a lot of gullible people that go to this church. Uh, and they all looked up when I said gullible was on the ceiling. No one did this time. Very good. Uh, <clears throat> No, stuff is, is just hard to believe, even if you think you might know it or, or you might be somewhat sure, like there's still always just a little bit of doubt. Um, if you've ever like asked someone for help, you weren't sure before you asked them like what they were going to say. Maybe you hoped they would say yes, right? Or if you've ever asked someone out on a date, like usually you don't ask them unless you have a good idea because rejection is too scary for most of us. Um, and then like if you ever asked anybody to marry you, like for me, when I asked my wife to marry me, like I assumed she was going to say, I had a pretty good idea that she was going to say yes. I mean, you know, you've talked about it. You've had the conversations. I mean, sometimes people even like will have a wedding date picked out, but the proposal still hasn't even happened. But even still going into the ask, like there's still some anxiety and there's still some, I was still nervous when I proposed to my wife because I just, like I had a good idea, but I wasn't totally sure. She was living here in California. I was out in Arizona. So I was, I was coming back to visit her um, on her birthday and she didn't know. I like called her before, like when I was at the airport, I'm like, hey, how's your birthday going? have a good dinner. I'm just finishing up work. I was on electrician at the time. And she's like, I could like hear, whoop, I could like hear it in her voice that she like got disappointed because I think she was hoping that I would like come out and surprise her for her birthday. But you know, I, it surprises don't work if they know. So I had to lie to her. It was a good lie. Um, <laughs> it's a great way to start a relationship. Um, and so lied to her. I fly out. My plane was late. I'm panicking. I'm like trying to tell the person at the desk at the airport, like, hey, can you make the planes go faster? I'm pretty sure they don't have that kind of control over planes, but you never know. And I was, I was nervous. I, was, I wasn't thinking straight. And so we get out there. I show up at the restaurant late where uh, they were celebrating her and her twin sister's birthday for dinner. And, and I walk in and she's like, she's ecstatic. She's over the moon. Like, uh, and, and just stoked that I'm there. And, and we hang out and she didn't know, but her, her, her parents were like, hey, why don't you go like hang out? You're just here for the night. Like go back to the house, like just hang out. And you know, and she was like, well, that's weird. Why do they want us to hang out alone at their house? Uh, and that was because that's where I had like it all set up, right? Her family set up for me. They had set up this table with like flowers and rose petals everywhere and candles lit and all this stuff. And, and this huge sign that's hanging up in our house 
that says lovers today, soulmates forever, something like that. It's romantic. And, um, and, and so we walk in. She's like, what? What is this? I'm like, ah, oh, it's just this, like surprise. Happy birthday. I want to give you your birthday gift. And I had, I had pulled out her gift. And let's pretend this is a Build-A-Bear box because um, it will help with the illustration. Uh, and so I got her a Build-A-Bear because at the time, like, she was obsessed with Build-A-Bears, which is cool. But man, it's an expensive bear. And so I went in. <coughs> I went in, like, I built the bear, and I, like, I recorded. Here's the thing, though. I recorded the proposal in the bear, right? Yeah, romantic, because then we have it forever. And, uh, and so, I, but the problem is, is because I was so worried she wouldn't say yes, like, because I had a hard time believing she was going to say yes, I, like, wrote down, like, in a card, like, all, like, the sweet, like, you're amazing, I'm nothing without you, like, all the stuff that would butter up to, like, you know, get her to an emotional state where she wouldn't make a clear choice and she would say yes, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I'll marry you. This is a beautiful card. Here's the problem. She loved Build-A-Bear so much. She reaches in, she pulls the bear out, throws the card to the side, and like, and she saw like the little sticker that said, oh, press me, I speak, or whatever it says. And, and she throws the card, she presses it, and I'm like, oh no. In my mind, I'm like, she's not going to read the card. She laughed because she remembers. Uh, it's my wife right there, by the way. Sorry. Um, she's, she, in my mind, I'm like, she's, she's not going to read the card. Like, she, she's, she doesn't read the card. She's not going to say yes. So I rip the bear out of her hand. Like, because she presses, she presses it. It starts talking. My voice is coming out. I rip it out of her hands, and I do the only thing that I thought that I could do so to make sure she said yes to marrying me, and that was hug the bear, roll on the floor, and scream, ah! You have to read the card. You have to read the card. And I'm like, in the back of my head, like, I'm about to propose to this woman, and I'm holding a bear yelling at her. <laughs> what is wrong with me? So she grabs the card. She reads the card. I don't know how well this will work. And then, so after she reads the card, she presses the, the bear button. And, and as the bear's talking, Hey, man, just wanted to wish you a happy birthday and just tell you that there's no way I could ever spend the rest of my life without you, which is why I'm down on one knee, babe. Will you marry me? Yeah, aww. I said babe twice. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah so I, that was like the sixth recording. Like, that was as good as it was going to get. Um, probably a good thing I recorded it. Who knows how bad it would have been in person. Uh, and so, like, as that happens, I get down on one knee, and I pull out the ring, and she starts crying, and we're hugging, and five minutes later, I'm like, so yes or no? Like, what's your actual answer? Like, even in that moment, at everything, it's like I still needed to hear it, and I didn't believe it until she actually said it. And I feel like for, for what we're looking at today, man, the resurrection, like, that's a hard thing to believe. When we look at miracles in the Bible, we're like, okay, water to wine, like, yeah, I mean, we kind of do that anyways. It just takes us a lot longer than Jesus does, you know, um, you know, health miracles and diseases and stuff like that. Like, you know, we see that in the medical field, unexplained, you know, healings and stuff like that. Like, but like when it comes to like surviving death, like, like you die and a few days later, you know, you're alive again. Like that is huge. Like this is, this, so much of our faith hinges on this, that Paul, he wrote to Christians in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, 14. He basically says like, man, if the resurrection didn't happen, this is useless. Like, our faith is useless. Us being together is useless. Like, all of this stuff, it has no point. Like, our faith hinges completely on the resurrection, on Jesus coming out of the grave, being alive, and still alive 
today. And I, and I want to like go into this with fresh eyes because to be honest with you, when I thought like, what am I supposed to like, the rest, like everybody comes to Easter, like people are going to be there on Sunday. I've heard this story every year. I'm like, how, how does a pastor know what to preach? Or how does he make the, the resurrection story fresh every year? And as I'm studying this week, man, like God totally made it fresh to me. And so I want to go in with as fresh eyes as possible as we look at this account of the resurrection in John. So we'll be in John 20. I want to read the first few verses here. Um, John 21 through 4. So it's early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Just a little important information. Whoops. Okay, yeah, I'll leave it up. So this is an emergency situation. How do we know this is an emergency situation? Because this isn't just about running, right? John doesn't record the fact that everybody's running, that Mary's running, that, that Peter is running slow, and John is running faster, right? He doesn't just put that in there because he wants to show that he's like the most athletic. Like, that's not the point. The point is, is this is an emergency situation. It requires running. I feel a little bit bad for Peter. Like, I personally identify with Peter as a slow runner. I have flat feet, knock knees. Like, when I run, it hurts to watch, hurts people to watch. As a kid, my stepdad would be like, Jerry, run. Like, why aren't you running? I'm like, this is me running. Like, this is what running looks like. I will get there eventually. Like, I'm not going to be in the Olympics for sprinting. Maybe for walking. I don't know. Right? Like, but, so I identify with Peter a little bit. But it's so much more than just, wow, who can run the fastest? Or who cares the most? Or who's in the better shape? And it's just crazy to see this scene. He starts out with, okay, it's morning. They go to the tomb. Mary leaves the people she's with to go find Peter. And John says, hey, I just ran here. I'm out of breath. The tomb's open. His body's gone. We don't know where he went. Like, someone took him. And so then they take off running. This is an emergency situation. Like, so much so, you have to remember, at this point, they're in hiding, right? The disciples are hiding out. Their leader's dead. Jesus is dead. He's just been sentenced to death. They're associated with him. They don't know what's going to happen next. They're worried what might happen to them. They don't, they don't know what's going to go on, but they throw caution to the wind completely. I don't know if you've ever been in a moment like this, but it's actually kind of fun to sort of not care about what might happen to you or anything, or like if you break any laws. For me, when our second daughter was born, our first daughter, uh, my wife had to be induced, but our second daughter, my, I like, Jill was like in a lot of pain, and I just kind of felt like, oh, it's going to happen tonight. I can just feel it, just because I have that power. And, and so... And so I like stayed awake and I was like 1.30 in the morning and like, boom, her water breaks. And I'm like, yes, yes, you're in pain. All right, let's go. And she's like panicking and I'm like excited because the whole time in the back of my mind, I'm like, I get to run red lights right now. Yes, right? Because when you're driving to the hospital at two in the morning, you're not stopping at red lights waiting for zero cars to show up, right? I mean, you slow down to do like the California stop thing, but like it, you don't stop and you throw caution to the wind. It's an emergency situation. My wife and the baby's lives are on the line. Light don't matter, right? Like, this is an emergency situation. Like, it doesn't matter who sees them at this point. They need to get to the tomb and figure out where Jesus' body is. They have to figure it out. This is not a yay moment, but an oh snap moment, all right? So let's, let's go into, let's pick up to, to where they uh, show up. So John 25 through 10. So he bent over. So this is John. Remember, he gets there first. He bent over and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. 
the cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So after all this running, they show up and they get to kind of see the situation for themselves and examine the situation for themselves. And there's sort of five observations I just want to make that, I, I, that will lead to an idea I have here. And that is the first is, okay, we see John's the first to arrive. He's the fastest. He's the most eager. Some might say he loved Jesus more, so he ran harder than Peter. Whatever. The point is, is he gets there first. The second is Peter gets there second. The third thing is Peter's the first to go in. So he's second there, but he's the first to actually go into the tomb. Whereas John is the second one to go in. Yet it's John is the one who ends up believing. And you would think like, no, like why wouldn't the one who believes is the one who's like the most eager to do things and to seek Jesus and to get out of the boat, right? Like how come, how come it's John that believes in this instance and not Peter? What's happening here? Well, first, I just want to point out One, we all handle serious situations differently, right? Just because you're the first to find something out or the first to know something doesn't mean you're going to be the first to understand it or the first to want to accept it or the first to believe it. And I think sometimes as believers, like we, we kind of... Look, we look at not maybe we look at non-Christians and we go like, I just don't get like why don't they understand it? Like they've heard this, they know the story, they know the good news. Like why why aren't they sold out for Jesus? Or we can even like look at people whose faith appears greater than ours and go like, man, it's not fair. Like how are they? How do they? How's their faith so big? How do they just trust Jesus so much with so much of their life? I don't get it. It's it's not fair. We're just constantly comparing our pace to the pace of others, but we have to recognize that our pace will never be exactly the same as everyone else around us. We are all going to come to this information and begin to believe and understand and trust at a different pace than others. But one thing that really keeps them from believing up to this point is the assumptions they carry. Assumptions keep us from believing, right? Remember, the assumption here is the grave has been robbed, I mean, think about that for a second. If, you're, if you showed up to visit a loved one's like, grave and it was dug up and the, the casket was open and the body's gone and the clothes are still there, like, you would think someone stole the body and they hated the outfit. Like, you wouldn't, you're, you're logical, you wouldn't just go, oh, cool, resurrection, sweet, grandpa must be getting his hair cut again. No, like, that's, that's not logical. And that's what they're thinking. They're thinking logically, just like you and I would think. They see an empty tomb, it's been opened, someone stole the body. The first thing we think isn't, oh, yeah, resurrection, that's, that's crazy. No, they are assuming that the grave has been robbed, that Jesus' body has been stolen. So why is it that John believed then? You see, this is where I think that it's key and why he points out the order of who gets there first and who goes in first and second. See, I, you see, he goes, he he gets to the tomb first, but he doesn't go in right away. Why wouldn't you go in in a situation like that? Maybe you're scared, whatever. The point is, is he's standing there thinking about what is happening, right? He's, he's taking time to process the situation and evaluate the evidence that's laying there in front of him, which is the linens. And based on the way the linens were laid, like a Jewish person would read this and go, oh my gosh, like they were still like folded and wrapped the way that they were when they were on Jesus' head. And so John, seeing that, 
goes, okay, so either Jesus sort of like evaporated through the cloth or something, or whoever stole his body took the time to drag his body out, go back in and fold everything up the same way. I mean, that would be like someone stealing a body out of a casket and like put, taking the clothes off and putting back in the casket and buttoning the shirt and tucking it in and folding the belt. Like that's, that doesn't make sense. I don't know how many of you, how many, who's ever stolen anything in their life in this room? Confession time. All right, good. You, all the kids in the back. Yeah, I still steal all the time. Um, so I stole from my mom a lot when I was a kid because I needed donuts for breakfast and, and she wouldn't give me donuts every day. And I felt like that was a need in my life. And so I would steal money the night before from her purse. When you're stealing something from someone and you have the potential to keep in mind, right? There's guards at this tomb. Okay. But when you're stealing something and you feel like you're going to be caught because there's someone nearby keeping watch, like you're not worried about putting things back nice and neat. Someone breaks into your home, they're not going to steal your TV and go, oh, the bed's not made. Let me just set this down and walk over, right? Like you don't, you don't do that. And that's, that's, you can see almost, right? Like, oh, John must be really processing this. He sees the linens based on how they are. So he either disappeared or someone, or, you know, evaporated through and resurrected or someone stole it and folded stuff, like that doesn't make sense. You see, it takes less, a little less faith to believe that Jesus was resurrected than it does to believe that his body was stolen. I think that all of us carry our own assumptions with us about God. I think that all of us carry our own assumptions about God, about the Bible, is it true? Was it translated right? Or all this stuff, right? About Jesus, about the church and Christianity. And they're not really like perfect. They're all hypocrites. And if you're a good Christian, you'd never claim to be perfect. And if you're a Christian, it's because you acknowledge probably for the first time in your life that you're not perfect, right? But we carry these assumptions that keep us from believing in Jesus, that keep us from believing the resurrection, um, that keep us, even after we've believed in the resurrection, from growing in our faith and trusting God further with where he has us in life, from going on to the next thing that he wants us to do or that he's calling us to do or to stop doing or whatever. There's, there's assumptions we carry that keep us from trusting God fully, so what is, what is the next thing? Let's go through the next few verses here, 11 through 16. So no, scenes changed. They've left, they've gone back. And so now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus's body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Like there's this crazy scene. Now, the way John wrote it, like, it seems a little bit insensitive because it's like, okay, they go, they check out the tomb, and then they leave, and Mary's out there crying. Like, did they just, like, walk by her crying? I like to think that she wasn't there yet. Remember, she ran to them first, so maybe she, like, walked back because she's winded or whatever. I don't know how often she ran. I don't know her exercise routine. It's not in the Gospels, so I don't know. Um, right? So anyways, the point is, is, is what's happening with Mary now and her interaction with Jesus. That's, that's the point that John's trying to get to. And so... What's crazy to me 
is she's sitting there and, and she's, she sees Jesus and she hears Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him. And I believe it's because of her emotions. Her emotions are keeping her from believing. Emotions keep us from believing and trusting in God further. Um, and, and maybe you might think like, no, I would, like, I would totally recognize Jesus if he was in front of me. I mean, it, it, it would make sense. She'd been with him for a few years, like knowing him for a few years. Like, how does she not recognize him? Like, it was early morning. Maybe Jesus had morning voice and sounded like Batman. I don't know. Like, right? No, emotions keep us from believing. So in sixth grade, fifth or sixth grade, okay, it was time for me to grow up. So me and my family, we rode dirt bikes together and stuff in the desert. And my, I was not the bravest of children, so I stayed on like the quads and the three-wheelers a little bit longer than most. But it was finally time for me to come of age, right? To become a man and get on a motorcycle with two wheels. And so finally, my, my parents were going to go look for one that they found in the cycle trader before they left. They're like, hey, just so you know, um, we, we think we're going to be able to do it if we can get the price low enough. And so they take me and my sister and they go drop us off at the babysitter. And the whole time I'm like, I'm too old to be at a babysitter. Just because I steal money doesn't mean I'm not responsible, right? And, and so my mom picks me up and my sister and we get in the car and I'm like, so did you, did you buy it? She goes, no, we couldn't. We couldn't get a good enough price. Sorry. Man, you, the, I like lost it crying. You would have thought someone just stole my loved one's body from the grave. Like that's how, that's how wrecked I was. I, I think it was because I, like, I felt like I will finally be tough if I have something on two wheels. I'll finally be looked at as like a man and strong or whatever, right? And so I wanted it so bad. My mom had no idea how obsessed I was with wanting this dirt bike. I mean, I bawled, cried the whole way home, snot all over the car, which she was happy about. And I walk in through the garage and my stepdad's in the garage, like, and the, hey, what's up? And I'm like, I want to talk to you. You're an awful person. And I walk inside and my mom comes in like two minutes later and she's like, what, what, what are you doing? I don't want to talk to you right now. You just ruined my life. You know, like you get emotional and overreact a little bit sometimes. And she goes, why don't you go back outside and take another look. Like, what? Take what? To do what now? <laughs> Go outside and I look in the garage. I mean, in the middle of the garage, right next to my stepdad, was this motorcycle, brand new to me, motorcycle, dirt bike, right? And I was like, what? I mean, I almost walked into it on the way in. But I did not even, this was not like a toy motorcycle that you play with in dirt and a shovel, right? This is a full-on machine that you could kill people with, right? Like, I walked by and I didn't see it because I was that emotional. And, and it helps us to realize, man, like when you see Mary in this state, man, she is in shock, right? This is an emergency situation. She's emotional. She's sad. Someone stole her body. She has her assumptions and her emotions working against her. So how does she go from seeing him and hearing him and still not recognizing him to him just saying her name? And now all of a sudden she's like, oh yeah, Jesus. Oh my gosh. Oh, right? How does she get to that moment? Well, if, I believe if you look at the questions Jesus asked, he addresses her emotions and her assumptions directly, right? He said, uh, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Why are you crying? What, what's going on with your emotions? What are you feeling? Who, who are you looking for? What assumption are you making? Why do you assume someone is missing? And it's like, as she responds to that, it's Jesus basically counseling her in this moment. Why are you feeling? What do you think is happening? It's like as she says it out loud, it's like it kind of becomes clear like, oh yeah, this doesn't make sense. Because all he has to say next is Mary. And it's not like he said her name in some magical way. 
or that his voice changed or whatever, or that he changed clothes real quick. Nah, he was the same person that in this whole conversation, nothing changed in him. The only thing that changed was how she dealt with her assumptions and how she dealt with her emotions. I believe that probably bigger than the assumptions we carry that keep us from believing and trusting in the resurrection and even walking further in our faith with God are our emotions. Man, our, our emotion, we build up huge emotional walls that keep us from truly trusting Christ and believing in the resurrection and really living for him. For me as a kid, right, when we're kids, like we're, we're ready and willing to believe in just about anything. You know, if it's good and sounds amazing, like, man, we hope that stuff is true. And so God being good and loving us and life in heaven with chocolate, right? Because as a kid, that's what you think heaven is. You know, like that's, you're, you're excited about it. So my parents, just a little background, my parents divorced when I was one and a half. My mom remarried to my stepdad when I was three. But none of, none of the divorce, and like, I got to love my stepdad. He was great. And like, I looked up to him. Um, honestly, he's really become like the father that I, I should have had. Um, and that's a separate sermon. Uh, and, uh, but the problem is when I got to like fifth, sixth grade, it was as though I was going through that divorce for the first time myself. Because when you're one and a half, like, you know, you don't remember anything like at all. Like you're just pooping and peeing on people. That's about it, you know? Um, and so around fifth, sixth grade, it hit me and I began to sort of try to reject my stepdad and I went through all this trauma and I began to, I'm like, you know what? If God loves me and he wants the best for me, like I'm gonna ask him. I'm gonna ask God for what I, what I feel I need. And so I prayed to God and I was like, God, wind back time and bring my parents, keep my parents together. And the sister I have now from my stepdad and my mom, like I want the same sister. Like that's a big prayer. Like I don't know how many of you ever prayed that big, but I had, I had some insane faith as a kid, right? Um, and it didn't happen. And so I took, because of my assumptions of who I thought God was based on all my knowledge and study of scripture at 12 years old, which was none because I wasn't even raised in the church. Um, and my emotions in the moment, I stopped believing and I stopped trusting in God because no time machine appeared. And no counselor appeared with that time machine to keep my parents together. It didn't happen. And so I just stopped believing in God because, it, because of my assumptions and it hurt too much. And I didn't understand. And I, I believe that we all carry a lot of different emotional reasons that might keep us from believing. Maybe, maybe you were raised in the church, right? Like your parents took you to church and they acted one way at church and at home it was like, whoa, Satan, what happened? Like, we, can we live in the church, please? Because when we're not in church, my parents suck, right? Like, and so you stop, and so you stop going because you don't want any part of their faith. Maybe you were abused by someone in the church. Maybe, um, maybe it's just the way you feel about Christians and they're all hypocrites. And, and I mean, whatever it is, maybe you deal, uh, or maybe someone, maybe you or someone you know was born with some sort of disease or illness or handicap or something. And you're just like, how is this fair? God, like, why? Like, they did nothing. Like, why are they born this way? You know, we deal with all these emotional issues and that, that put walls up between us and just make it difficult to trust God because we assume he should be a certain way. And we assume he is a certain way. I think sometimes too even, we're so emotional over stuff that we turn to coping mechanisms and we abuse substances and even like let people abuse us in unhealthy relationships and sort of deal with our emotions that way. And that keeps us from trusting God further because we sort of have to recognize that we have those unhealthy things in our life that we have to get rid of. And that's, that's too hard. We're too emotional 
to do that. So how do, we, how do we go from, okay, I have my emotions and my assumptions to fully trusting in God and believing the resurrection or just trusting God to do the next thing in your faith that he's calling you to do? I mean, you have to recognize your assumptions. Like we do, we have to, we have to, I mean, and I don't care how old you are, at what point in your faith journey you're at, whether you've never believed or you've been, you know, walking on water for a couple years now, like you still have assumptions and emotional walls that are keeping you from going further in your faith with God. It's just, it's just the way it is. We do, we all do. So how do we how do, we do that? How did, how did Mary really do that? Well, first let me answer, what do we get to do? Why is it worth it? And that is uh, the next couple of verses that Jesus talks with Mary about. So he says, listen, don't hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God, and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. First, let me just point out how cool it is that Jesus used a woman first to be like the first evangelizer to bring the good news first, because culturally speaking, like a woman's testimony, especially in their culture, didn't hold a whole lot of weight. And in a lot of cultures in this world today, even in America, even sometimes in the church, like we don't fully respect the voice of a woman, right? And that's what I love about Jesus is it doesn't, doesn't matter. He'll use the least of these to bring the greatest news ever. And so he tells Mary, hey, you've seen me? Go and share this with my followers. Go and tell them that I'm alive and go and tell them about this interaction we've had. You see, when we deal with the assumptions and the emotions that are keeping us from trusting Christ, we get to share and be a part of the greatest thing ever. We get to be a part of the resurrection. Because here's the thing about faith. Some people will say, oh, faith is good and religion is good for people because like, it, it's, it's what they need to be a good person, but not me. Because I, I can work on my anger and I can work on my greed and selfishness and, and I can work on my lust issues and, and just wanting a lot and, and you know, and, and substance abuse. Like, like, right, like people all the time, everywhere, overcome sin issues without God. Uh, maybe overcomes a strong word. Get better, struggle less with their sin issues without God. And so they assume I don't need God because I can, I can do good things in these areas that I suck at most of the time. So I'm somewhat good. But man, there's one thing that none of us can do. No person in this room can do. And that is resurrect ourselves. We just, we can't. It is the one bad thing that every single person in this room will have to face and deal with. Even though, I mean, we try to pretend like, you know, we're going to overcome death, right? We get the hair plugs and gels and augmentations and gym memberships, which only work if you show up at the gym and, <laughs> right? Like, we, we pretend like, no, it's never going to happen to me. I'm never going to die. You know, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be okay. I'll make it. I'll figure it out. And yet, we all end up there. But man, when we are willing to say, you know what, yeah, I have these emotional blocks or I have these assumptions and press into them with God, like we get to be a part of the greatest thing ever. And that is the resurrection, right? I mean, we have the most amazing hope out there. But the problem is there's just so many people who are letting their assumptions and emotions get in the way of trusting that. I think one kind of little rebuttal to, to all of this might be, well, you know what? Like Jesus was right there in front of her. Man, if Jesus was on this stage, like we would all walk out and be like, okay, he showed up at church this week. Finally, 
You know, I've been coming every Sunday, to, you know, to see the main event and like he's never there, right? It's like going to a U2 concert and U2 never comes on stage, you know, because that's the way we sort of view life. If we go to church, right, and it's about Jesus, shouldn't he be up here? You know, that's kind of what we think because we assume things, but he's not here. But I, I, I want to counter your argument to if Jesus was up here, I'd believe, or if he was in front of me saying my name, I'd believe too. He was right in front of Mary. Mary saw her, or saw him. He spoke to her, and she didn't recognize him. This was someone who walked with him for a few years, and she still didn't recognize him. Her assumptions and emotions were so strong that even after knowing somebody like Jesus, she still didn't recognize him. One, uh, one, when I was trying to sort of like I guess think through this, like, well, so how, how, do you, how do you really get there? Like, how do you just trust him? Like, how does that, how does that happen? And, and we were talking about in the sermon meeting, Greg gave me this, like, knowledge bomb of following often happens before believing. Man, that's so true. And it's something that's so obvious in Scripture, right? Mary believes right now in this moment. John believes right now in this moment. But how long had they followed Jesus and been with him and tried to be like him? You know, I mean, none of, none of them were good enough or anything like that. They all struggled. None of them were perfect. But following often happens before believing because here's the thing. When you follow Christ, it diffuses your assumptions and your emotions. Because you're saying, you know what? Yes, I assume God is this way or I assume the Bible is this or I assume Jesus is this or I assume Christians are this. And yes, I feel this way about this thing. Like it doesn't make sense to me, God, why one of the greatest women I've ever met and known in my life has breast cancer and is having to fight that right now. But when we go to God with that and we press into that with faith, the belief will come. It's when we sit back with our assumptions in our emotions, that no change happens. And no belief happens. If you want to believe, you have to follow. Some believe without following and like your faith is amazing and believe without seeing, your faith is awesome. And that's a gift, which will be talked about in the coming weeks. But faith, man, it's so key, man. Following often happens before faith. That's so freeing. Maybe, maybe you're sitting there saying, now, now it's too hard to be good enough to follow Jesus. Like, I just don't know if I could actually follow him and be good enough. I can't do that. Well, like, I got even better news for you, okay? None of the disciples were. No one was good enough to follow Jesus. And you look at the people he asked to follow him. They were messed up dudes. They had some serious issues. But it's a not about being good enough because you're loved enough to follow Jesus. That's all it requires. You don't have to be good because he loves you. And when you pursue him and when you follow him, that's when the belief will happen. When you take whatever assumptions you're carrying and whatever emotions you have that are keeping you from trusting and believing in the resurrection and having that hope or moving further in your faith and doing that next thing that God wants you to do. When you take those emotions, assumptions, and you follow him with them, they will be dealt with and you will believe. Let's pray. God, I, uh, we thank you. Thank you for this story, God. I thank you for, for the way you interacted with Mary in this moment. 
I thank you for how you help us to believe. God, we're, we're grateful that you allow us to follow you before we believe. God, I pray now in this moment that you help us just to reflect on what assumptions and what emotions might be keeping us from trusting in the resurrection and pursuing you and believing you or just taking the next step of faith that you're calling us to, God. Bring those to our minds now. So your name we pray, amen.